0: Book of Zechariah, chapter 4. In this book, the prophet gets underway immediately, as you know. We've been studying through this. And we have seen that he launches almost immediately in the first chapter into eight night visions. Eight visions through the night, but they're not dreamy. These are not sleepy reveries, they are wakeful visions. And in fact, the Lord would have Zechariah wide awake to see these things and know the difference that they're not some kind of vagary, but they are actual visions of the Lord that He sees with open eyes. We saw the rider on the red horse, Zechariah one seven through seventeen. The horns and the craftsmen, Zechariah one18 through twenty one. Chapter two, we saw the man with the measuring line in his hand. Chapter 3, the filthy priest, the branch and the stone. All of these visions, the first four anyway, were sent to convey comfort, to inspire courage, to, to build up the people of Israel back from their captivity, to remind them, as you know, the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. Amen. You guys got it. The name Zachariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. The theme of the entire book of Zechariah. What you may not know is that each vision builds on the last. That it's like climbing stairs. Because the previous vision leads to the explanation of the next vision. And then through all of them, though... Though each one has an independent and individual message, when you put it all together, it's a great meta-narrative of what the Lord is doing. And I love that about the Lord, the way He writes His Word, the way He expresses through the prophets what needs to be heard by His people. And you can hear one vision and go, yes, that's encouraging. But when you see the whole picture... It is an astounding and unmistakable prophecy of what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, and what the Lord is about to do. So we come tonight to the fifth of the eight visions. As we begin chapter 4, verse 1, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who has awakened from his sleep. Now you might say, Rick, that's weird. The, the angel's rousing him as one awakened from his sleep. I thought you have been saying that he didn't sleep through these visions, that, that they were actual visions that he saw and not dreams that he was having. Well, here's the proof. What's going on is he has just nodded off. The visions have been exhausting. Zechariah is worn out. Wouldn't you be? I will be by the end of this evening. I guarantee it. <laughs> I just want you in the back to be able to hear me, so I'm going to pause a lot as long as they're flying. But my friends, Zechariah is sleepy. He's on the night shift. right? Four visions, one after another. And we know from previous prophets that the visions can be exhausting. Daniel saw visions and was on his couch for three weeks. So the prophet here, this young man, young Zachariah, is getting these visions and and he just starts to get drowsy. He starts to get sleepy and the angel rouses him because it is God's intention, don't miss this, God's intention that his people not sleep through vision. That his people not get drowsy. Zachariah, you've got to be awake and alert to receive these things that are coming. And so must any servant of the Lord. We above all people are called not to be drowsy, but determined. Not to be sluggish, but strong in the Lord. Not to be apathetic, but awake and alert and aware. And so like Zechariah, it's interesting, we face an ongoing battle of flesh and spirit, don't we? Jesus said the spirit is willing. but The flesh, dude, the flesh is weak pretty sure he didn't say dude, but you know what I'm saying? Day to day, common life has a numbing effect. It has a wearying effect on us, but the Lord wants his people wide awake. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5:6, let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I know you've heard that before. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be alert and awake. But life can be exhausting. This has been an exhausting week. Over at the new facility, I can tell you that. I've come home every night this week wiped out. I think Brian, even more so. Our staff working, trying to get stuff done, and and just the emotion of all of it and everything happening, it life wears us down. How do we remain spiritually awake when the flesh is like an electric blanket on a cold morning? You know what I'm talking about? You're under that warm blanket and your nose is cold so you know what it's gonna be like outside. And you just wanna stay there and that's what the flesh does. The flesh says, take it easy. Stay here. Let it go. Don't worry about it. What did Jesus say? Turn over to Mark chapter 14. Couple of books to your right. Mark chapter 14. I wanted a detour just for a moment here because I think this is such an important application for us spiritually in our lives. Something I hadn't really seen this way before. Jesus is with the boys. He's there in Gethsemane. We're told in verse 32 of Mark 14. He came to the place named Shimon, Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, "...Sit here while until I have prayed." And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible the hour might pass him by. And as he was saying, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 37, he came and found them (laughs) sleeping and said to Peter, Shimon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? keep watching and pray that you may not come into temptation the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak you know the story again he went away and prayed saying the same words and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him what does that mean it means they were stumbling all over themselves Uh, 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 like my kids when i'm trying to get them up for school why are you still in bed Uh, 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 electric blanket dad Lord said a third time, came to them, verse 41, and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Like Peter and the boys, Jesus comes to us again and again and again, and he says, Keep watch. But like Peter and the boys, again and again and again, I say, Lord, I'm tired. How do we keep watch when we are spiritually exhausted? And if your answer to that question is prayer, worship, Bible study, I would say you're wrong. You're dead wrong. How do you know? Well, how many of you have found yourselves dozing in prayer? All i got to do is pray. Dear Lord... How many have found yourselves kind of lost in worship? You realize we're like three songs in, but you're oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, what song are we on? <laughs> Hoping beyond hope that you're not going to be standing up sound asleep while everybody else sits down and the songs are over. <laughs> right? How many have fought to stay awake during Bible study? Yeah, I see you. I know. Jesus didn't tell them to pray. Jesus told them specifically, pray that you may not fall into temptation. It's not just prayer, it's what you pray and it's to whom you pray. Because if I, in my own strength, try to make it in prayer or in worship or even in Bible study, by my strength, I'm not going to make it. I need His Spirit. It is a flesh versus spirit battle that we are engaged in flesh versus spirit and our lives will be a flesh spirit battle this is a constant thing and the only way that we win the battle is when we have the help of the spirit the only way I keep watch is through the power of the spirit as I seek the Lord and so the the practical application don't just pray pray that he helps you pray And don't just study the Word. Ask the Lord Jesus to help you. Study the Word. Don't just worship. Invite the Lord to invigorate and enliven you in worship. Lean on Him even in these areas. And that, by the way, is the key to the fifth vision. The key phrase of Zechariah 4 and of the... Now, fifth vision, the vision of the golden lampstand is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's try to look at it in between flybys. Verse 2. Back in Zechariah, verse 2. He said to me, after he's roused him now, he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on top of it and it's seven lamps on it and seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Zacharias sees the menorah, the golden, seven-branched golden lampstand that stands or, or stood in the tabernacle. There was one in the tabernacle. There were ten... In Solomon's temple in the first temple and this is what Zachariah sees and he would be familiar with that. Any Jew would. It's the lampstand. All the Jewish people understood the trimming of the lampstand was a daily chore for the priestly service of the temple. Every day they had to keep that lampstand burning. They had to keep it lit. They had to keep the oil inside the cups. They had to keep the wicks trimmed. Keep the light on in the holy place. Exodus 27, verse 20, which says, "...you shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel." Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, talks about the same thing, trimming the lamps. That being the case, why didn't Zechariah understand what he saw? He sees this lampstand. Verse 4 tells us The one speaking, I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? Duh. Any good Jew would know it's the lampstand. And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Why doesn't Zechariah know? Understand what he's seeing here is not just the lampstand. It's not the lampstand that befuddles him at all. It's the fact that there are all these additional items in the vision. There's a bowl suspended above the menorah. Seven spouts on each lamp. Seven lamps, seven spouts, 49 spouts. A bowl above the lampstand, all these spouts on the lamps themselves. Two golden pipes, which we'll read about down in the 12th verse, feeding the bowl above the lampstand. And two huge, fruitful, leafy olive trees. And none of that was present in the tabernacle or the temple. So no wonder Zechariah sees it and goes, What's going on here? What are, what are these, Lord? And the angel never directly answers him. The angel makes it clear that the vision is a picture of the pure flowing power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't go through and describe it. He just, he just gives one basic answer. Verse 6, He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This picture is one that once Zachariah shares it with Zerubbabel would stick the lampstand, the power, the light in the holy place fed by these olive trees in the same way that the spirit of the Lord, the, the, Lord, the oil feeds the leader, feeds Zerubbabel. This is how it's going to get done, Zerubbabel, by my spirit, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you answer that, Oh, cool, I don't get drunk. You miss the point. The point is not the drinking. The point is the Spirit. The point is, Paul is saying, you have opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. You want to be empowered in this life, you can be filled with His Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18 with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the Spirit and note this Paul says with this in view that is with the Spirit in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints where does the strength come from to be on the alert with all petition for all the saints being filled with the Spirit praying in the Spirit seeking the strength of the Spirit Jude 1 verse 20 Beloved, you build yourselves up on your most holy faith Praying in the Holy Spirit Keep yourselves in the love of God Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ To eternal life The whole point of the vision is There is no greater strength than that of the Spirit of the Lord And there is no way to accomplish what you need to Without the Spirit of the Lord Flowing in again practical application pray for power in prayer ask for wakefulness in worship request strength by the spirit of the Lord when we're in Bible study and I believe you will find in all three areas of your worship and your focus on Jesus you will find yourself invigorated now why is this all directed at Zerubbabel Zerubbabel He's the governing prince of Jerusalem. He's the one in charge. And he's got mountains of problems in front of him. Insurmountable stuff. I know how he feels. Zerubbabel is facing issues that he cannot fix. Stuff that he can't overcome. Verse 7, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And He will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The mountain. Some have suggested this mountain described here is the sluggishness of the people. Trying to move the Jews to build the temple. It's been 15 years since they laid the foundation. Remember that? And no one's moving. seems insurmountable. Some have said it's Persia or oppressive Gentile nations. Insurmountable. Too big. Mountains. Some some have even suggested that there was a huge slash pile of debris on the temple mount that had to be moved and no one knew how to do that. It doesn't really matter what the mountain was. Whatever it was, God says, hey, Zerubbabel, guess what? I'm going to level it. I'm going to make it a plane. I'm going to make it plain to see that I'm the one in charge here. And Zerubbabel, you yourself are going to place the final stone on the new temple, the capstone as it were. In Hebrew, the Roshan Aben. He's going to place it atop the temple and when he does it, Zerubbabel is going to say, Grace! Grace to it! Why? Why? Why would he shout that? I think the answer is obvious. And I want you to understand our prayer is the same thing for this new building. That when we have our first worship in it prayerfully Sunday morning that we will say we are here by grace. We are here by the glory and the power of God and not by anything that anyone has done. And I believe He wants us to say that. I believe He wants us to glorify Him for what He has done. Well, Zerubbabel would. He would. He'd place the capstone and say, praise the Lord. Grace, grace to it. This is all by the grace of God. Remember, gang, Hebrews 12.2, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who finishes the job. And He gets the glory So so between where you are and where you need to be, whatever mountain of problems may be standing in your way, understand this very simply. The Lord God is a leveler of mountains. It's not a problem for Him psalm 27 11, teach me your way O lord and lead me in a level path because of my foes or jesus said in matthew 21 21 if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what was done to the fig tree but you will say to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and it'll go because god is a leveler of mountains verse 8 also the word of the Lord came to me saying the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you who's the me I believe this is Jesus again speaking why because verse 8 tells us the word of the Lord came the word of the Lord Jesus is the word And he came and he said, You're going to know the Lord has sent me to you. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Three quick notes on this. First of all, the word of the Lord. Again, they came to Zechariah. There in verse 8, is, I believe, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, who says, the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. But verse 10 is interesting. He says, Who has despised the day of small things? Haggai put it this way, chapter 2, verse 3 of that prophet, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Little things... This temple on Mount Moriah is a little thing compared to Persia, compared to the glories of the Gentiles in charge. It's just a little thing. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't despise the little things. doesn't despise the little things. The things that seem insignificant to us, they matter to Him. The people who seem not really consequential matter to Him. He does not despise the small things. Even this work on the temple, to the Lord, this was a big deal. This was important. It mattered. And so are you, temples of the Lord. You may seem a small thing. You may feel like you're a little thing. You matter. You matter. Jesus does not despise what the world calls little things. Now, verse 10 continues on and says, these seven will be glad. These seven what? Well, he tells you, these seven, the eyes of the Lord. Which range to and fro fo- to and fro throughout the earth. The seven eyes of the Lord. Remember the stone. We talked about on Sunday. The stone with seven eyes. It simply speaks of the complete vision of God. He doesn't miss anything. Not a thing, even little things. He doesn't miss them. He sees what's going on. He sees the planes flying by. He's aware of this. I love this verse, but it should rattle us a bit. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. I'm not getting away with anything. You're not pulling a fast one on the Lord. He sees everything. Now, when I was a child, that scared me a little. When I was a teenager, I didn't want to hear that at all now that I'm growing a little older in the Lord it gives me comfort like I can't describe kind of depends on where you're at with the Lord you know depends on your relationship with Him God sees and is aware of everything and it's either a great comfort or it'll freak you out depending on where you are at with the Lord so that's a great test a great measure of where your heart is with Jesus. If you're right with the Lord, His awareness of every aspect of your life is a welcome thing. If you're not right with the Lord, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable. It's a good way to see where you are. Now the vision gives way to a remarkable prophecy. He sees this the lampstand. He sees the bowl above it. He sees these trees beside it, these olive trees. He sees all of of the lamps lit and being filled. And verse 11, continuing on, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered a second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? Now, check this out. You've got olive trees, right? And they're pouring oil into this bowl above the lampstand and the oil is coming out of the bowl into all of these uh, these spouts going into the lamps and keeping everything lit. But he describes the oil he describes it and in the Hebrew literally it's just the golden he doesn't say golden oil, he says what is this golden stuff that the oil coming from these trees is represented in the vision as pure gold flowing into the golden lampstand and lighting the place up. It's a remarkable picture here. What is all of this? Verse 13, So He answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then He said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Really? These are the two anointed ones Anointed ones. The Hebrew there is not Mashiach, which is the word for anointed, Messiah. These are the two anointed ones. It's literally, these are the two Vineyat Shar, the two sons of oil. These are the sons of oil. And there's an immediate understanding, an immediate application of this. There's also a future application. And then there's a greater application than any of that. The immediate application, the sons of oil, who are these two anointed ones? Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. That's the immediate. Prophecy often has an immediate application or immediate fulfillment, and then it has a a later fulfillment. And in the immediate, you've got Joshua, the high priest, representing the religious aspect of Jewish life. Then you have Zerubbabel, the governor, representing the civic aspect of Jewish life. And in both instances, religion and politics, (laughs) God says, these are my anointed ones. These are my leaders. Pay attention to them. It's an incredible encouragement for Joshua Joshua the high priest who would look back at the history of Israel and see men like Aaron, you know? And other great priests along the way. And here he is back with a paltry group of exiles after you know Israel had gotten banished. What am I, Joshua might think? You're one of my anointed ones, the Lord says. Zerubbabel, who's in charge of this mess, how'd he get this job? I don't know. But he's got to wonder from time to time, Lord... What do I do with all this? Am I even the right guy? You're one of my sons of oil. You are one of the anointed ones. Joshua, Zerubbabel. Great encouragement. But the prophecy is bigger. Look at verse 14 again. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The Lord of the whole earth, the creator of Jew and Gentile alike. These two anointed ones speaks of something greater than Joshua and Zerubbabel who are two Jewish leaders. It also speaks of two that would, well, that they would speak to Jew and Gentile. That they would stand by the Lord of the whole earth. There are two men. You Bible students know. Two witnesses. Revelation chapter 11 speaks of these two who will come during the first half of the tribulation, sent by God to speak the word of the Lord, and the whole world's going to hear them. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. The Lord says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Revelation 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Not only are they the olive trees, but they're the the two lampstands. And who are they? Well, listen to their description and see if you don't have a clue. Revelation 11, verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths. And devours their enemies. So, if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. That would be the coolest thing, you know. If I had a superpower, <laughs> these witnesses have this. We're also told in verse 6 of Revelation 11, they have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophecy. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Answer me just two questions. Who had the power to call down fire and shut up the rain? Elijah did. Elijah the prophet. I'm not saying this is Elijah, but it certainly could be. Certainly looks like Elijah to me. And Elijah stands as the greatest prophet of Israel on the religious side, kind of like the high priest Joshua, focused on the religious aspect of Israel. So you have your Elijah, the prophet, who shut up the sky from rain and called down fire from heaven. Answer me this Who had the power to turn water to blood and to strike with plagues? Moses, Moses did. Sounds like him to me. Now, some say, can't be Moses. There are those who say, I'll accept Elijah because he never died. He climbed into a fiery chariot and off he went. So he didn't die. So he needs to come back and die. Moses died, the Bible tells us. Can't be Moses. And they'll quote Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Elijah never died. Neither did a guy named Enoch. Genesis chapter 5. Therefore, Elijah never died. Enoch never died. Must be Elijah and Enoch. Problem. Enoch never shut up the sky from rain. Or called down fire from heaven. Enoch never turned the seed to blood. Or called out plagues. These two witnesses do. The representation, what is described here, is Elijah and Moses. But more importantly than that, people say, I don't have to do anything but pay taxes and die. Guess what? Death is not an absolute. You don't have to die. Some will not ever taste death. So it doesn't have to be Enoch to come back and die because he never died and it wouldn't be fair otherwise. Well, tell me, how fair is it that the entire church that is alive at the time of Christ's coming is raptured and will never taste death? I've already signed up for that. I'm hoping to be part of that crew. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. Okay, so if you die... You believe in Jesus, but you die, guess what? You're going to be saved, you're going to be raptured, you're going to be caught up, you're going to live again. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, and everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? John 11, 25. So those among Jesus' people who are alive at the time of the rapture of the church will never die. I think we're looking at Moses and Elijah as the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of all the earth during that time of tribulation. I think they will be resurrected. Well, Moses resurrected, Elijah will just come back. (laughs) And they will both be the witnesses talked about in Revelation 11. But the prophecy is bigger still. Because it's not just talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. And it's bigger than the two witnesses. How so? How many olive trees did Zechariah see? How many olive trees? He saw two. How many lampstands did he see? One with seven branches. So you're getting the seven in there, that's right. But one lampstand, seven branches on the one lampstand, two trees. That's what Zechariah saw. John said that there were the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Right? For the two witnesses. But Zechariah in the original vision saw one. Two olive trees feeding into one lampstand. This whole picture is bigger than Joshua and Zerubbabel. It's bigger than the two witnesses in Revelation 11. It speaks primarily of the light of the world. It speaks of the one who would be both priest and king. The olive tree speeding into the lampstand who always represented the light of the world, Jesus Christ. This speaks of Jesus. Zechariah 6.13, and we'll get into this on Sunday. It is He who will build the temple of the Lord, and He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. Thus He will be a priest on His throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Christ the high priest like Joshua, and Christ the ruling authority like Zerubbabel. Christ greater than the two witnesses in the tribulation. And remember with the lampstand, and i got to point this out, Remember, the lampstand has seven branches. It has a primary shaft that goes up the middle with the light at the top of that. And then six arms that come off of it for a total of seven. And Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, describing the man called branch, not sar, the word for Nazareth, says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him like that central shaft, the Spirit of the Lord the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah describes the branch as the lampstand. The lampstand is a picture of Jesus and the spirit flowing in and through Him because it's it's His spirit. So He will rule in the office of priest and of king and that's the the vision that Zechariah receives. Now, continuing on, the first five visions. You guys okay? You with me? Can you hear me in the back? A little bit? Okay. The first five visions speak of the hope of Israel. Talk about its coming glory all the way up to this lampstand vision. It's glorious, it's wonderful, it's encouraging. But before the council of peace can come, there's some stuff that has to be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. And so we enter into the next two visions. Vision number six. The flying scroll. The flying scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And He said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. (laughs) Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. He said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Note that it's land, it's Eretz, it's referring to the land of Israel. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away, according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away, according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. Then it will spend the night within that house, and consume it with timber and stones. The flying scroll. Zacharias sees this. It represents a curse for those who violate the law of God. What he sees is a large unrolled scroll. We know that because of the description of it. Because he can see writing on both sides of it. It's 20 cubits by 10 cubits, or actually 30 feet by 15 feet, is that right? 20 by... yeah. yeah, 20 by 10 cubits. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. So do the math. This is a 30 foot long scroll, 10 feet wide. This is a big honking scroll. Flying through the air, Zachariah sees this thing and apparently it's moving around because he can read both sides. He can see both sides. Why is it written on both sides? Because it's representative of the tables of the law. Listen to this, Exodus 32, verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and on the other. Furthermore, what's interesting is the curses that are mentioned, or at least the, the law violations that are on this scroll, on one side of it, we see, we see someone who steals. Well, that's one of the Ten Commandments, Right? On the other side of the scroll, we see someone who swears, literally, specifically, who swears by the name of God. That's another of the Ten Commandments. But note their placement. In the middle of the first half of the Ten Commandments, commandment number 3, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. That is, who swears falsely by the name of God. And people do it all the time. All the time. I remind you, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to respect the name of God. And I don't throw it around lightly, and I don't allow my children to, and we don't in my household. I'm not so far as to say we need to write G-D like the conservative Jewish people will do. But man, respect the name, the Hashem of God. Don't swear falsely by it. Take it seriously. In the middle of the second half of the Ten Commandments, we see the Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. You shall not swear falsely on one side. You shall not steal on the other side. What's the implication here? I believe that these two commandments are the standout issues in Jerusalem at the time. that people were very loosely swearing by the name of God. And at the same time, people were ripping each other off. More on that in just a second. But they also represent God's greatest concern for humanity. Oh, not just stealing and swearing. Wow, it's quiet. (laughs) Not just stealing and swearing. Stealing representing the, the table of the commandments, the second table, the second half. Representing our relationship. One man to another, one woman to another. Beginning with the 5th commandment and running through the 10th commandment, every one of those commands deals with how we relate to each other as human beings. The second table of the commandments. The first table of commandments deals with how we relate to God. So on one side of this scroll that is a curse, we see the command, how you deal with God. On the other side, how you deal with each other. And Jesus summed the whole thing up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. And we see both tables of the Ten Commandments represented on this scroll. Going out now as a curse, because these two commands are being violated immediately, but also because these two commands represent a person's relationship with God and a person's relationship with their fellow people. The vision of this flying scroll reveals what happens when someone violates the most basic commands of relationship between people and God. Look again at verse 3. This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged. Skip down, everyone who swears will be purged. I will make it go forth. And note this, it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. The scroll, the curse, is going to come spend the night. Spend the night is a single word in the Hebrew. It's perfect. The word is loon. Loon. It means to lodge. The scroll is going to loon. It means to abide. You gotta be a complete loon to invite the sin to spend the night. You gotta be crazy to live a life that invites cursing to lodge in your house. And that's what the Lord is describing here. That's what rebellion against the most basic commandments does. And don't get me wrong, I'm not being legalistic here. The beauty of the Ten Commandments is that it describes how we are to live with each other and how we are to love our God. And if we are loving God and loving each other, commandments fulfilled. But if we're violating those commandments, guess what? We're not really loving each other if we're ripping people off. We were talking at the building uh, today about keeping track of keys and making sure certain doors are locked and that kind of thing. Why? Because people steal things. Oh, not in the church building. When I first got my iPad and began learning how to use it for lesson notes and teaching, and it just flipped sideways on me. Stop that. When I first got this, I did some research and I did some study into how to best use this as a tool and not as a cool techie thing, you know. And pastors gave lists. I went online and there are pastors giving lists of what to do and what not to do with the iPad, what to turn off, what to turn on, what to, how to use it correctly. One of the number one things I heard from a number of different pastors, including those of you who know Levi Lusco, was don't leave it on your pulpit between services. Because Levi Lusco, on the very first service when he used his new iPad, came back for second service and it was gone. Someone stole it out of his church. Amazing. Stupid. It's ridiculous. But human beings will do that and violate the love covenant that God calls us to. And violate, we will, the love covenant that He has with us. It's all about relationship where God is concerned. It's not legalism. It's not, keep all the laws just right. It's, love me. Love each other. And all this stuff will be taken care of. When we don't, we invite the curse. Instead of loving God when we love the one we're with. It's an old reference back to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Some of you guys remember that. In 1967, when free love was blossoming in our country, the Rolling Stones released their hit single, Let's Spend the Night Together. Loons! (laughs) Loons! <laughs> Let's spend the night together. You know what's interesting? And I don't blame the Stones for this. They were reflecting culture, living culture. I mean, they, you know, they were, they were in the midst of all that themselves. But guess what? What they reflected and what was going on culturally in the 60s has had a dramatic impact today. As of this morning, read an article that was talking about the marriage rate in America is at an all-time low that among adults in America in the 60s, in the early 60s, one out of every five Americans was married among adults. Today in America, one out of every ten is married. Now, with the ruling that homosexual marriage is allowable, I'm sure that number is going to go up. I say that with extreme sarcasm. But the issue is that, hey, marriage is inconsequential. Marriage is unnecessary. Let's just live together. Let's just move in together. Well, that's what the world says. How's it working out? It's disastrous. It's causing broken relationships. It's causing the love of one person for another to be messed up in a way that God did not intend. It's bringing a curse into the house and it's causing the houses, as he said, it's causing the houses to be consumed. It's not that there aren't couples, men and women living together and having babies. and, and It's just marriage that's down. James says, Each one is tempted, James 1.14, when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sin is like a flying scroll that lodges in your home and consumes everything. But it's not the only fly in the ointment. Vision number seven. And this one is going to bother some of you ladies. I apologize ahead of time, but I didn't write it. (laughs) You take it up with the Lord. Verse five. The vision begins of the woman in the ephah. (laughs) Watch this. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what is going forth. I said, what is it? He said, this is the ephah going forth again he said this is their appearance in all the land and behold a lead cover was lifted up and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah and then he said this is wickedness and he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight onto its opening <laughs> <laughs> <That's incredible. laughs> I read that for the first time this week and just went wow God is awesome.
1: <coughs>
0: I mean, who comes up with this? This is just amazing to me. Before I even get to the Epha, though, I want you to remember the branch. We talked about on Sunday, the branch, Messiah the branch. A picture of stability. A picture of rootedness. And think of the olive trees. Feeding into the lampstand, again, steady, strong, unwavering. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how God works through our lives. He brings stability. He levels the mountains. He gives us a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Holy consistent. Contrast that with flying scrolls and ephahs suddenly now as we're dealing with sin we're looking at things that are flying through the air uncontrollably wildly cursing consuming the houses overnight and and now we see this this ephah with this woman in it like a like a spaceship you know from mars flying through the air what is this stuff it's wild it's moving And Feinberg says moral forces in the world do not remain stationary or stagnant. There's either progress or there's retrogression. And we see an interesting contrast here. Morals and values, listen, morals and values are only as stable as that into which they are grounded and rooted. You want strong moral values, then you stay connected to the vine. If you want to be uncontrollable and wild and, and you want your house to be consumed, well then by all means, do whatever feels right. But Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, is solid. He's stable. You can count on Him. Never changing. Grounded and rooted. Now the ephah. What is this ephah? The ephah is the largest measuring system for the Jewish people. It was, it was the largest dry measure for the Israelites. Imagine a large basket or barrel. Okay, uh, roughly ten gallons or so. Could be a little bit larger than that, but that's the ephah, and it was used to measure commodities like grain or flour, uh, barley. And they would could fill up that ephah, and it'd be a large, heavy to carry thing. But it was a thing of measurement. So imagine that, this large barrel or basket has a lead cover over the top of it. That's what he first sees going forth, going in the air. Could very much have looked like a flying saucer. Not kidding. It's flowing and there's this, and all of a sudden the lead cover is lifted to reveal who the pilot is. It's a woman sitting inside. And almost as suddenly as the lead cover is open, the angel here, showing him the vision, grabs a woman, throws her back down inside and slams it shut. Dude, that's really not how you treat a woman. (laughs) Show a little respect, right? He had to because the woman is wickedness. There is wickedness in this thing of measure. J. Vernon McGee points out that one of the greatest sins of Israel after their return from Babylon was their insatiable love of commerce, money, and their desire for material things. And so at least at its first presentation, this ephah is very much a picture of commercial sin, of commercial greed, of, of desire for trade and for commerce and for money out of all of this. We know this was a problem because Nehemiah, who was dealing or would deal with the people shortly after this had to bring this up Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 5 now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers our children like their children yet behold we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others people brought this Jews brought this to Nehemiah and said we're in slavery to our own people who are ripping us off we're indebted to our own people now Nehemiah says, verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 5, I was very angry when I heard their outcry with these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and rulers and said to them, You're exacting usury. He says you are... Each exacting usury from his brother, therefore I held a great assembly against them. Nehemiah had to deal with the fact that the Jewish people were ripping off the Jewish people by charging them exorbitant interest and when they couldn't pay it, putting them into slave labor. And that was a big problem in that day. Ultimately, the love of money affected their very ability to be faithful. I know this doesn't have a problem or it doesn't happen with us as much, (laughs) <laughs> Malachi 3.8 says will a man rob God? Malachi came along in 420 B.C. We'll get to him after Zechariah. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the Lord says, in tithes and offerings. Ouch. Godless commercialism. The ephah is a picture of this going on. Wickedness in the center of it. This woman, this wicked woman. (laughs) It's not a man, it's a woman. Sorry girls. But it's more. It's more than that. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wickedness here in this ephah, gang, it is greater than greed it is a picture of overall wickedness and what's happening here with this vision and the previous one is sin's got to be worked out of this land sin's got to be dealt with wickedness has got to be removed and in the removal of this wickedness you got to ask the question why is it a woman? why is it? why why not just because there's this guy in the ephah and and he's wickedness no it's a woman it's always a woman I know, I'm treading on thin thin ice here. The woman here is wickedness personified. It's as simple as that. And in fact, the word for wickedness is feminine in the Hebrew, and and therefore some have just said, well, it's because it's a feminine word in the Hebrew, therefore that he just used a woman as a personification. But it is wickedness personified, which is why the angel had to keep a lid on her. (laughs) Shut her in. This is wickedness in this thing. And just as those of Israel were cursed for violating the law in the flying scroll vision, now wickedness in general has got to be cleansed from the land. And it will be completely prior to the millennial kingdom. But hold hold on to your seats here. It gets weirder. Verse 9. <laughs> Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming out with the wind in their wings. Oh, lovely. They must be angelic. No. Because they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Remember, this is a vision, okay? Understand that this is a picture here that Zechariah is seeing. It's a portrayal to explain something else. But these two women, some have said, oh, they're heavenly beings. No, they're not because no heavenly being has the wings of a stork, which is an unclean bird. They represent evil as well. And what we see going on is these two stork-feathered women now are flying up, grabbing the ephah, and they're taking it home. They're taking it back to where it belongs. Where's that? Verse 10. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me, to build a temple or a house for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. The reason why it's uh, translated temple there in verse 11, the literal word is house. But the reason why the translators say temple is because she will be set there on her own pedestal as in idol worship. And so they believe that that house there is actually referring to a temple. An idolatrous temple in the land of Shinar, Babylon. They're taking the wickedness back to Babylon. And there's wickedness inherent in idolatry, inherent in greed, in the general sin of the world. And gang, as things wind down, and especially when the tribulation gets underway, and we are not here to see this, but when the tribulation gets underway, All of the sin and wickedness of mankind is going to go back home and is going to be rooted, Revelation tells us, in the land of Shinar, Babylon. That's where wickedness is going. This whole thing sets the stage for final judgment. That's why I'm saying that Zechariah is seeing visions both for his day but also all the way down beyond our day. And this wickedness going back to Babylon is a picture of that. Revelation chapter seventeen, and you know what? I'll just I'll read it to you. You've been so patient tonight, and I just praise the Lord for silence. Revelation seventeen. If you want to turn there real fast, I'm just going to read, starting in verse one. It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and these are bowls of judgment, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her, her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, and literally it should read here, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses Of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Maybe when you read this, you wonder greatly, what exactly is this all about? Don't have time to talk about it tonight. Go over to chapter 18. Revelation 18. And really, if you want to know more about Revelation 17, go and study through it. We have it online. There's teaching in Revelation 17 talking about the woman who rides the beast, the woman Babylon. But it is a picture here that John is seeing of. Babylon of oh, the center of wickedness and rule, world rule and authority in the tribulation. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory and he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now listen to this. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird, which I think would include storks. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. No wonder wickedness is being carried back in an ephah. Because it's speaking, again, of commercial greed. And it's all bound up together. You, you can't separate it out. Capitalistic Americans, we got to be careful with our capitalism. I'm not opposed to the free market. I'm not a socialist. Not by any stretch of the imagination. It doesn't work. But I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not called to be greedy. We are called to give. And the Lord... The Lord calls this out as a major issue, and it will get worse before it gets better. Go back to Zechariah. It's not my intention to cover any more of of this woman and this wickedness, but just so you see the connection with the end times, with with the tribulation period, and this and this epha flowing. And we see this. We see the flying scroll. So, so Israel has to be cleansed of their violation of of the commands. And then we see the epho with wickedness. has got to be taken out of the land before Messiah can come. Guess what happens next? Vision number 8. The final vision is the four chariots. Quickly, verse 1 of chapter uh, 6. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. And the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. So don't try to connect these with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and get all weirded out. This is just four chariots with these different colored horses coming. Verse four. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, "What are these, my lord?" And the angel replied to me, "These are the four spirits of heaven." going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Which four spirits are those, you might ask? And I would answer, the four spirits of heaven. They're going out, they've been in the presence of the Lord. And it says in verse 6, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country. And the white ones go forth after them while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go and patrol the earth. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds a lot like the rider on the red horse and they came to patrol, right? Remember the very first vision? They came to patrol the earth and they saw that the earth was kind of quiet. And it spoke back of those days. This is not speaking of those days. This is speaking of days yet to come strong ones went out. They were eager to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried out to me and spoke to me saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have, note this, appeased my wrath in the land of the north. The wrath of God appeased. What I believe this is speaking of, these four chariots ride out from between the two bronze mountains What is bronze a picture of Bible students in the scripture? Judgment. You got it Spencer. Bronze is a picture of judgment. You see the bronze altar on which the judgment of the people is dealt with through the sacrifices. When when John sees Jesus he has feet of bronze. You know coming as a judge. So it's a picture of judgment. But there are two mountains. And they're not just any mountains. The definite article in the Hebrew says, I looked and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. Not just any two, the two. And because of this, there are those who think that perhaps these are two very specific and known mountains. Two Literal mountains that are portrayed as mountains of bronze because judgment comes out from them. These four chariots riding from between them. What mountains might those be that are well known to the Jewish people? Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. Listen to this Joel 3:16 The Lord roars from Zion utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. That's Joel 3:16 one of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 In that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The only two mountains mountains listed by name among the minor prophets are Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And so when these four chariots are coming through the mountains, it may very well be a picture of the Lord in His coming is now sending out a patrol over the whole earth which He has just conquered in His glory. And they come back and they say it's all good. And the Lord says, then my wrath has been appeased. And at that point, the earth is ready to be refurbished for the millennial kingdom. This vision portrays this final judgment on the Gentile nations. It kind of concludes the whole picture. Guess what comes next? What comes next in Zechariah is not a vision. The eight visions are concluded. But immediately following the eight visions, just note this, we're told the word of the Lord came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai and Tobijah and Jediah, And you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. And say, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Gang, following this final vision of the four chariots going out to patrol and check the judgment that has fallen on planet Earth, immediately we come to the coronation of a king. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. Let's bow and pray in the peace. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing. Thank you for the wherewithal, truly, Lord, for us to hear. And I pray, Father, that this will take root in our hearts. Especially, Father, that we would stay awake. Father, I read this and I realize we are involved with great things things Lord that are so far beyond us beyond our reach beyond our power in fact we are just we sit on the sidelines we see these visions and we marvel and we say Lord what could we possibly have to do with any of this we're we're just little little peons in this great vast plan that you are working out Lord what is our part you have called us to stay awake You've called us to keep watch. And so we pray not by might nor by power but by Your Spirit. Keep us awake, Lord. Keep our prayers focused, our study intense. Keep our worship pure before You, Lord. For we love You and we are so grateful to be called among Your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.